Welcome to the Purdue Commercial AgCast from the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture. I'm Jim Minter, Director of Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture, and joining me today is Michael Langemeyer, Associate Director of the Center and Professor of Ag Economics here at Purdue. Today's podcast focuses on the ag outlook following release of the USDA's July World Ag Supply and Demand Estimates. Michael, thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here. So WASD report came out yesterday, the World Ag Supply Demand Estimates, and uh, really not a lot of changes, some fairly small ones, but let's just kind of walk through those. On the corn side, there was a very small harvested acreage reduction. Uh, the USDA released the 2019 yield by uh, four-tenths of a bushel per acre to 167.4. That combination of slightly smaller acreage and the yield reduction pulled the 2019 production estimate down by 46 million bushels. But they also reduced usage. They reduced uh, ethanol usage by about 50 million bushels to 4.9 billion. And as a result, that pushed the carryover, the estimated carryover from the 2019 crop into 2020 up by 5 million bushels. And that left their season average price projection unchanged at uh, 360 per bushel. Looking ahead to the 2020 crop, no changes at all except for that slightly larger 2019 crop carryover coming in. And that left their season average price projection unchanged at 320 per bushel. Um, the big question mark, of course, here is the acreage. USDA's estimates all rely on the planning intentions report that came out at the end of March. And that's what they're using for acreage numbers. The acreage report with the actual plantings reported by farmers here in early June, that comes out at the end of this month in about two weeks. So that's really going to be the next change. And you and I both been talking about this. We think there's a chance that the acreage numbers will change relative to the planning intentions report. Yeah, it would not be a surprise if, if, if we see a one, one to two million acre shift from corn to soybeans. Uh, that would that would uh, uh, that would take corn down to about 95 million and soybeans up to about 85 uh, 85 and a half million acres. Yeah, so we'll see how that shakes out. We're going to talk a little more about that later with respect to why we think that's the case, but but keep that in mind. So the numbers we're going to work through here are relying really on two things: one on trend yields, and secondly, they're relying on that acreage uh, coming out of the planning intentions report from back in March and. The issue this year is economic conditions changed quite a bit since the date of that survey. So let's take a look at the soybean side. On the soybean supply-demand side, no change in harvested acreage, or at least no appreciable change, no change in yield. When they put the two together, they did pull down the production number uh, down from the 2019 crop by about 5 million bushels. So there was a tiny adjustment on the yield and harvested acreage, but really a very tiny one. So 5 million bushels fewer coming out of the 2019 crop. They increased the crush estimate by 15 million bushels, but they reduced exports, expected exports out of the 2019 crop by 25 million bushels. And the net result was an expected carryover increase of about 5 million bushels. That puts it up to 585 million bushel projected carryover and a season average price projection unchanged from a month ago at 850. Looking at the 2020 estimates, they increased the expected crush compared to what they were forecasting a month ago by 15 million bushels, otherwise unchanged. Season average price protection unchanged at about 820. And then again, the issue again is this acreage estimate. Uh, really, we think that could be the driver in terms of change here relative to what USDA was forecasting for 2020 is whether or not we see a, a shift in those acres. If you look at the production, USDA's 
still got us at roughly 16 billion bushels on corn. And of course, that would be record large. But that does assume that farmers follow those planting intentions and trend yields. And let's just kind of revisit that for just a bit. Michael, you looked at this uh, earlier today. Yeah, currently with the March planting intentions, uh, we are looking at corn. Uh, corn planted 97 million acres. Soybeans planted 83.5 million acres. Uh, if we saw a one to two million acres shift in that, that would take corn down to 95 to 96 million acres and soybeans up uh, to 84.5 to 85.5 uh, million acres. Um, certainly the, the conditions have changed since March 1st. Uh, we're gonna talk some more about this, uh, but, but the, the major change since March 1st or early March is the large increase in, uh, in the soybean to corn price ratio. Uh, using uh, using the, uh, November uh, soybean futures and December corn futures, uh, the price ratio is increased from about 2.3, maybe even a lower, little lower than that uh, earlier this year uh, and into March, all the way up to 2.5 and a little bit above that uh, currently. And most importantly, the shift occurred right during the, right when people were starting to get the planters uh, rolling in the field or slightly before that, uh, the shift from uh, about 2.3 to 2.5 occurred in late March and early April. And so certainly there was a window there uh, for people to switch from corn to soybeans. And, and the market was telling people uh, to do that. Now, we know there's probably not large shifts uh, in response to this change in price. Uh, but certainly at the margin, that's why we think maybe one to two million acres shift is certainly possible uh, given the change in profitability prospects between corn and soybeans. Yeah, I think the interesting thing about this is uh, had this shift occurred earlier in the winter, we'd be much more confident of a major acreage shift. But it occurred late enough that virtually everybody probably had their seed purchased, uh, their herbicides purchased, et cetera. And so it did really require that farmers make a shift away from the plans they'd already made. And that's probably the uh, the, the holdback here in terms of seeing a big shift. But still, it happened in that kind of late the tail end of March, as you indicated, first part of April, and that created an opportunity for some people to shift a little bit. And that's why we're kind of sticking with that one to two million acre shift away from the planning intentions report. Um, and just to think about it, maybe a little more concretely, you took a look at the difference in earnings per acre, uh, corn versus soybeans. You might elaborate. Yeah, on earlier that. this year, it looked like corn and soybeans were going to be very similar in terms of profitability. Uh, that changed rather dramatically. Uh, starting in late March, early April, when we saw that increase in the soybean to price ratio. Uh, now it looks like using using our budgets, which of course could change depending on the relative yields and relative prices, it looks like soybeans are going to be considerably more profitable. Uh, the, the tune of about $100 per acre, which would be similar, a similar uh, 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 advantage towards soybeans that we saw in 17 and 18. So just a very dramatic shift in profitability between corn and soybeans uh, that's taken place just in the last few weeks. Yeah, and that, the magnitude was large enough it had to catch uh, some people's attention, at least that's what we think. So so let's talk a little bit about some factors that have really been influencing the corn market. And of course, one of those is ethanol. Um, you know, ethanol production, when you compare it on a week-by-week -week basis to what was taking place at the beginning of the year, which kind of gives you an idea is that the magnitude of the shift, you know, ethanol production in the U.S. hung in there pretty well until about the third week of March. And then ethanol margins really dropped off enough that plants started to shut down and plants that remained open certainly uh, operated at less than normal capacity. 
and on a week by week basis, you know, as you got into late March, beginning of April, we were running between 23 and almost 40% below what we were running in terms of bushels going through ethanol plants um, compared to that first week, first full week of January. By the middle of April, uh, late April and beginning of May, we were running between 45 and 50% below a year ago. Uh, and then the interesting part about this is after that, starting about the 1st of May, we started to bounce back. And if you look at the most recent data from the Energy Information Agency, which is for the week ending, uh, I think, June 5th, uh, ethanol production down about 24% compared to that first week of January. Stated another way, that puts ethanol production uh, back in the ballpark of what it was uh, about the third or fourth week of March. And uh, the trend line's pretty strong there. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see if we continue to pull those ethanol uh, production numbers up. That's obviously positive for corn demand and, and obviously what uh, would be very positive for the corn market. Um, if you look at gasoline and ethanol prices, uh, I took a look at that with respect to uh, Nebraska's Energy Statistics Group publishes um, what they call rack prices, essentially wholesale prices for unleaded gasoline and, and ethanol on a monthly basis. And, you know, you can see the bounce back there. Uh, ethanol in the month of April, I think averaged on a wholesale basis about 59 cents a gallon. Month of May, it bounced back to 75 cents a gallon. That's still below where it was in, uh, for example, March. I think March was 84 cents. February was $1.03. January was $1.15. You go back to last November, it was $1.44. So we're still well below that, but at least moving in the right direction from a standpoint of boosting corn demand. And, and a lot of that obviously being driven by higher gasoline prices. Gasoline prices uh, in the month of April averaged, I think, $0.63 cents a gallon wholesale in that uh, Nebraska data series. Uh, that moved up to $1.06 in uh, the month of May. So Rebounding gasoline prices, rebounding ethanol prices are positive for the corn market. And, uh, you know, I think good news in terms of maybe starting to pull uh, some of those ethanol plants back online. Just a moment. Uh, as you look at um, ethanol usage, I think one of the keys there is, is the ethanol plant margins. Uh, Iowa State University's uh, Center for Ag and Rural Development uh, publishes an estimated uh, ethanol plant margins on a daily basis. And, you know, Michael, we looked at this uh, a few weeks ago, and then we just uh, kind of updated the information here uh, uh, yesterday. That's really interesting to look at that. On a per-gallon basis, if you compare uh, those margins, their return over operating cost, in late March, they were negative, right? And, of course, anytime you fail to cover your variable operating cost, uh, that's a clear clear cut sign that you should shut the plant down, and that's exactly what the industry was doing. Uh, if you look at it since then, since uh, about that third to fourth week of March, those margins have really improved. Now they're not great by historical standards, but they're still much better than they were. In fact, for the week ending June fifth, uh, those margins were positive twenty cents. So they moved from a negative twelve cent uh, margin to a positive twenty cent margin between late March and uh, the first week of June. So that bodes well, I think, in terms of maybe tr encouraging those plants to come back online. That still doesn't mean those plants are profitable, though. I think that's probably a key point to, to keep in mind. It, but it does mean they're able to more than cover their uh, variable cost, which is, which is 
positive news for the industry. Um, if you think about ethanol consumption, uh, or excuse me, uh, corn consumption going into ethanol plants, USDA on the report yesterday did back off the ethanol estimate, uh, usage estimate just a little bit. They went to 4.9 billion bushels from 4.95 billion bushels a month ago. So down 50 million bushels. Um, that's in the ballpark of what we've been expecting. I think uh, we've been talking about this off and on uh, for the last couple of months. We've been you know, right around that 5 billion bushel mark. USDA has actually pulled it back a little bit below that. And now for the 2020 crop, they're forecasting a pretty nice little rebound uh, to 5.2 billion bushels of corn going into ethanol production. That's a 300 million bump compared to where we are at the moment. Uh, you were looking at this earlier today, Michael. What, uh, you had kind of an interesting perspective on this. Yeah, 5.2 sounds pretty good when you compare it to 4.9 in 2019. But the 5.2 is still quite a bit below where we were in 2017 and 2018. In 2017, we used 5.6 billion bushels uh, in our ethanol plants, and, and you know, so which is obviously – uh, rather large compared to the 2020 number. And so that just puts the 2020 number in perspective. Uh, l looking at the 4.9 billion bushels used in 2019, it hasn't been that low since 2012, which is, of course, the drought year. And so that just tells you how much ethanol, uh, you know, how much corn demand was, was de declined uh, with, with the uh, ethanol plants not running at capacity uh, in the last few weeks. Another way to look at ethanol is the impact it's had on basis. And uh, so I looked at the crop basis tool on the Center for Commercial Agriculture's website that uh, Nathan Thompson on our faculty maintains on a week-to-week -week basis. And he updated that just this morning. And as you look at the basis, and I was looking for West Central Indiana here, uh, you know, until the first week of March, corn basis was much more positive here in, in West Central Indiana and really throughout the Eastern Corn Belt than the historical average. Uh, I was comparing that uh, current year basis to the historical average. We were way above average uh, all through this marketing year. And then as the month of March progressed and, and moved into April, basis just collapsed as those ethanol plants uh, either shut down or slowed down. And we actually pushed the basis level below the three-year average, the most recent three-year average. Here the last several weeks, though, about the last three weeks, as we've looked at those ethanol plants starting to come back online, it has provided a boost to corn basis here in the eastern corn belt and pushed basis levels uh, slightly above the three-year average. So that's good news. Uh, but I think from a longer-term perspective, looking ahead for the rest of this marketing year, it seems pretty unlikely that we're going to be able to push corn basis levels back anywhere close to where they were before the coronavirus situation hit. Um, it's not going to be that, that much of a boost, but it, it is good news. Those plants are starting to pick up, starting to process corn again, starting to buy corn that is having a positive impact on basis. Uh, on the export side, you know, not a lot of change there. I think uh, USDA has currently got exports for the 2019 crop. 1.78 billion bushels, forecasting a rebound to 2.15 billion bushels in the 2020 marketing year. That would put exports above where they were in the 2018 crop, but still leave them below both the 2016 and 2017 crop levels. So um, 
even at that 2.15, that really implies a demand recovery in those importing countries. And I think it's worth thinking about, you know, why, why those countries are importing corn. It's to produce meat for consumers. And as you think about what that means, uh, increased demand for meat has to come from in, uh, rising income. And so implicitly, they're kind of in, in, implying that we're going to see uh, some demand recovery, some economic recovery in those importing countries and giving us a boost on. Uh, yeah, probably you're assuming a, a fairly strong recovery in, in, in countries there uh, because if, if, if we don't see a fairly strong re- recovery, it's not going to hit that 2.15. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things to think about is, is on the meat side that those um, from the U.S. anyway, uh, Meat exports have become a very important source of demand, and that's also tied to income in those importing countries. So the whole animal complex is really somewhat reliant um, on the recovery in demand, recovery in income in those importing countries, and that's going to be key going forward. So what happens not only in the U.S. with respect to recovery from the coronavirus situation is important, but also what happens in those importing countries as well. Um, and that, you know, that leads right into... Talking about feed demand, uh, USDA's got relatively strong feed demand, both uh, for the 2019 crop year and the 2020 crop year. They've got feed demand for this year at 5.7 billion bushels. They've got that going to over 6 billion bushels in the 2020 crop year. Um, To keep that in perspective, that's almost, not quite, but almost a billion bushels more than they expect to go into ethanol production. So um, that's going to be pretty important. And I think at least so far that makes sense to me because although we've seen wild swings in profitability in the livestock sector here recently, we haven't really seen evidence of a major liquidation take place. And we entered this year uh, poised to have record meat production here in the U.S. Um, It looks like so far we're largely keeping those herds intact and likely to see relatively large meat production going forward. Now that could change, uh, but that's the way it looks today. And that's clearly what USDA is projecting here. I think part of what's going on there for 2020 is also the fact that DDG supply is not going to be as big in 2020 as it was in 2019, just given the fact that the, that the plants just weren't operating, uh, you know, at, at very high levels in April and May, that's going to draw down the, the DDG supply for the year. Good point. Yeah. So where does that leave us in terms of ending stocks? The ending stocks numbers are big, right? If you look at uh, the 2019 crop, 15% ending stock to use ratio coming out of this year, out of the 2019 crop. But rising, if we see that record corn crop production that USDA is talking about, to 22% at the end of the marketing of the 2020 marketing year going into the 2021 marketing year. And it's been a long time since we've seen a carryover that large. In fact, over the last decade, we haven't even come close. 16% has been as big as we've been. So that's a big rise. And that really explains why they're pushing the uh, marketing year average forecast for the 2020 crop down to 320, down from 360 in the 2019 marketing year. So, um, but again, Keep in mind that does rely on two things. It relies on trend yields and it relies on the acreage from the planning intentions report being the actual acreage. And we've already indicated, we think that the acreage is going to shift a little bit. And of course the yield thing is, uh, 
open to question at this point. Obviously, we've got uh, quite a bit of the growing season ahead of us, but that's still the best estimate this early in the season. Michael, let's kind of shift gears a little bit and talk about soybeans. Um, yeah, soybean soybean exports in, in 2019 are down quite a bit from what they were, uh, you know, particularly in 16 and 17 when we had over two uh, two billion bushels uh, bushels exported, uh, with a large large percentage of those going to China. Uh, dipped back down in 18 to 19 to more of that 1.75 to 1.65, 1.65 to 1.75 um, billion bushels. But they're expecting recovery in, in 2020. That certainly would be good news. Uh, to uh, to exports at, at, at over two billion bushels. Uh, that, that would not that would not be as high as what we saw in 1617, but it would certainly be a large increase uh, compared to 18 and 19. Uh, obviously, those are dependent uh, on on uh, how many how many soybeans get sent to China, and so there is quite a bit of uncertainty related to that number. But that's certainly good news. Yeah, so they've got the soybean uh, export number up 400 million bushels in 2020 compared to what it's uh, projected to be here for 2019. And, um, you know, it's a 24% increase. So that's a big one. Uh, and as you point out, it is reliant uh, pretty much on, on some significant recovery in exports to China. So that's a risk on that soybean forecast. Let's take a look at the uh, ending stocks to use ratios. Um, coming out of the 2018 crop, and that's, of course, when we were hit with the suspension of trade to China, the carryover uh, was 23% of usage coming out of the 2018 crop. The 2019 crop, USDA is projecting that to be about 15% of usage, so tightening up quite a bit, and that's largely because of that reduction in acres that we saw last year, which pulled the production numbers down so dramatically. And then looking ahead to the 2020 crop, this was the interesting part here. These last couple of reports, uh, they've actually got uh, ending stocks as a percentage of use below 10%. In fact, uh, for this uh, report that came out yesterday, they're just barely above 9% and actually have it tightening up a little bit compared to what they were forecasting a month ago. So I think if you think about from the soybean perspective, that chart looks better than uh, maybe I would have forecast a few months ago. Uh, now the question, though, is you know what, can we achieve that? And it's really going to be hinged partly on the supply side. And we actually think soybean acreage is going to be a little larger than what USDA is currently suggesting. So that's one factor to consider. And then the other one, of course, is what's going to take place on the uh, the export side. And, um, but, but Jim, even even if we saw a two million uh, two million acre increase from the March. March and Tenson's report, we'd still only have a carryover for soybeans of about 11%. Uh, you compare that to the whopping 22% for corn, uh, and so soybeans is certainly in a better position right now. And, and, and that's why it shouldn't be too surprising why we've seen some recent strength uh, in, in soybean futures. Uh, they've, they've increased, I think, about 25 cents, uh, you know, looking at the, uh, the nearby futures and a little more than that. Uh, looking at the November futures, and so that's not real surprising, given oh, given where we're at in terms of carry potential carryover for 2020. Yeah, and so for clarity, that that 25 cents you were referring to is relative to the lows we put in in late April, right? Yes. So we've rebounded. That doesn't take us back to where we were, you know, before all this happened, but it does. Uh, represent an improvement uh, relative to where we were. And uh, I think roughly the bottom was around the 20th or 21st of April. So good to see some improvement, um, but it's still well below where we were previously. Let's take a look at the basis levels. 
a little different story than corn. Uh, the basis levels have been above the average for virtually this entire marketing year. And we have lost some of that gain relative to the average here over the last two months. But uh, unlike corn, soybean basis is still more positive than uh, than the five-year, uh, excuse me, the three-year average. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the good part. Uh, the challenging part, and this really applies to both corn and soybeans, we're rapidly approaching that time of year when it becomes difficult to forecast basis. Uh, Nathan Thompson in our department has done uh, some research on looking at that and concluded it's really difficult uh, to forecast basis, especially when you get into the month of July and August. Um, the variability in new crop supplies starts to have a big impact on basis and uh, uh, the risk of storing that far into the marketing season becomes pretty high. And so I think that leads us to some discussion about, you know, what should you do with old crop supplies that you've got uh, remaining uh, either uh, on the farm or perhaps commercial storage? What do you think, Michael? Yes, that's a, that's a very important question. And, and, and as you indicated, there's quite a bit of risk. Uh, as you as you hold those beans into July and August, and so and so, I definitely think you should start to think about uh, marketing some of those marketing some of that old crop soybeans soon. Uh, it's very difficult, of course, to pick a day or pick a week even uh, to do that. But uh, uh, just keep in mind that you're 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 going to have quite a bit of a volatility, quite a bit of risk associated with holding those beans. Uh, you know, you know, longer than about two to four weeks. Yeah, so let's think about that a little bit. So historically, you're right. Um, we had uh, back at the top farmer conference in January, Chad Hart from Iowa State was our guest speaker that came in and, and, and provided some very stimulating things to think about. And one of his comments was on a seasonal basis, as you get into this uh, early to mid-June time frame, historically, that's been a pretty good time to market corn and to some extent soybeans as well. So thinking about uh, remaining old crop supplies on the farm. This is a time when, uh, as you indicated, we don't know if today's the day or tomorrow, but uh, certainly this is the time of year to be thinking about moving some of those supplies. And I guess maybe as a corollary to that, uh, you and I were taking a quick look at the most recent uh, six to 10 day outlooks for uh, both temperature and, and precipitation. And uh, NOAA is forecasting uh, above average temperatures for uh, virtually the entire Corn Belt. Uh, the biggest increase in temperatures that they're forecasting is kind of for the more of the northern Corn Belt, I guess is kind of how I'd characterize it. Uh, but even the southern Corn Belt above average. And then you look at precipitation, uh, they're also forecasting over the next six to 10 days below average precipitation for most of the Corn Belt. And a little bit of a flip-flop with respect to precipitation and temperature. The biggest reduction in precipitation is being forecast for the southern part of the Corn Belt, but even the kind of central and northern parts of the Corn Belt uh, uh, below average as well. And so um, if that turns out to be the case, that might help create that rally opportunity that we sometimes see uh, this time of year. And maybe that's going to create an opportunity to perhaps uh, clean up some of the, those old crop sales and potentially make some new crop sales. Let's take a look at uh, the CFAP program. Michael, you've kind of reviewed uh, uh, potential for payments coming out of the CARES Act. You want to walk through that a little bit? Yeah, before we get into the actual dollar amounts, let's just review a little bit some of the features 
uh, of the program. Uh, first of all, the, the application is open right now and it does end on August 28th. And so you wanna make sure you get your application uh, in and so it can get processed. Uh, and it is based on eligible inventory and it's a lower of self-certified unpriced inventory as of January 15th of this year or 50% of 2019 production. And so let's just look at a couple scenarios there. If you sold most of your crop uh, in, in, in 2000, your 2019 crop uh, in late 2019, or more specifically before January 15th of this year, that that it, that those bushels are not eligible. And, and the thinking behind that is you sold them before the prices declined. Um, um, conversely, if you've held on to most of your bushels and you had almost all of your bushels uh, you, you were holding from the 2019 crop on January 15th, you're only going to get paid on 50%. Uh, and so that's very important to note. Um, the average payment rate is going to be uh, 0.335 uh, cents per bushel of, of, on the eligible inventory for corn and 0.475 per bushel for soybeans. And so uh, and so some uh, some uh, some fairly fairly good payments coming out of this program that's going to translate into about twenty to twenty five dollars per acre for a corn soybean farm. Uh, before I get into more specifics related to the dollar amounts, let's review some features of the ARC County and the PLC program. Um, we were recommending that people get into uh, the ARC County program for soybeans. Uh, payments for this for payments occur under the ARC County program uh, when actual revenue is below ARC County guarantee. Uh, the data used, remember, is county yields and marketing year average U.S. prices. And so for 2019 uh, for soybeans, um, you, know, you know, they're using the 850 uh, price for soybeans and 820 uh, for uh, 2020 prices. Uh, both of those could change, but, but in particular, the 2020 price uh, could change because there's a, uh, that's just a forecast, of course. Uh, the PLC program payments occur if prices drop below what we call reference prices. Um, and we were encouraging people to sign up for uh, a PLC for corn, uh, also wheat, but corn's our focus here. Uh, the reference price for corn is 370. So the, uh, the 1920 marketing year price uh, is currently estimated at 360. So maybe a small payment uh, for the PLC program in, uh, uh, in 1920. And then looking ahead at, at 2021, uh, with that 320 corn price, a rather sizable uh, payment could occur. And so this is going to partially offset uh, the, the decrease in prices that we've seen uh, since early, early March. Uh, remember, for the PLC program, it's based on PLC program yields. That's farm specific and these marketing year average U.S. prices. So one of the things that one of the things that uh, I want to talk about next is to talk about how these payments are, are really dependent on what where prices end up. And so if we assume a, a 360 corn price for, for 2019 and then look at different prices for 2020 in terms of corn prices, if corn price would be $3 per bushel, hope it doesn't decline uh, to $3 per bushel, it's currently at 320, uh, the payment, uh, the PLC payment would be estimated to be $90 uh, for, for White County, Indiana. That would be uh, county that would vary a little bit depending on the county you're looking at uh, and also farm because it's based on PLC yields. Uh, on the other hand, if uh, the price is 320, uh, you're looking at a payment of, of $62. And so, um, and so it looks like 2020 payments are going to be rather large 
um, you know, because we have these we have these low prices for corn. So, Michael, as you look at the price scenarios, and I you looked at several. You looked at prices ranging between three dollars and three dollars and eighty cents for that marketing year average for twenty twenty. Under every single one of those scenarios, the PLC program is going to generate higher uh, returns to the farmer. Correct? Yes, that our counties. Then that that that's certainly that's certainly the case. That's kind of what we were anticipating when people were signing up back in uh, late. February, and then in, in two thousand nineteen, which I didn't talk about, uh, you haven't talked about yet. Uh, the PLC program, we're expecting a small payment uh, from for that program. I mean, around ten ten dollars, something in that. Uh, if you signed up for our county, uh, the, the 2019 payment is, is, is very, very small, under, under $5. Take a look at uh, soybeans. Uh, soybeans, the our county payments look like they're going to be better than the PLC. So, so far, our advice is, uh, was sound. Again, looking at, at, at White County uh, for 2019, uh, it looks like a, a pretty good our county payment. And I, I, I've looked at several counties, at least in Indiana, and it looks like this is the case. Uh, for quite a few counties, uh, for for White County, uh, it looks like the, the payment will be over twenty five dollars, or approximately twenty five dollars per acre uh, for twenty nineteen. Uh, the twenty twenty payment, of course, is going to depend on where prices uh, end up. Uh, if 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 soybean prices would be eight dollars, which is lower uh, than the current uh, forecast of eight twenty, you'd be looking at a, a pretty good payment uh, of twenty five dollars per acre. Uh, and and if prices got even lower than that, uh, the payment would increase. But even, even as that price decreases, our county still looks better than PLC for soybeans. Yeah, I think one of the scenarios you took a look at was 750, which is obviously lower than we think is likely. But even at that point, uh, the our county There program, you'd probably be close to your maximum our county payment. It'd be about uh, 45 to, to $50 per acre. Yeah, and, and that was still about 10 to $12 an acre higher than the projection under the PLC. And, and part of what was going on there, uh, part of what was going on there is the PLC price for soybeans uh, at 840 is, is relatively low uh, compared to what soybeans have been historically. And so that's one of the reasons why the PLC program was not very attractive uh, for soybeans. I have to say that there are probably some locations, in fact, I'm sure there are some locations where uh, the PLC program might look better. Uh, and that would largely be because in the years when they were setting their benchmark guarantees, they had relatively low yields, and as a result, had yes. relatively low guarantees. Yes, that's a very important point. It did depend. It, it's very county specific uh, when you look at it, when you look at our county, but because it, it does depend on what those what did what years were used to set that revenue guarantee. Yeah, the benchmarks matter is another way of saying that. So, so you've kind of summarized some government payment estimates for the last several years and projected out to uh, for 2019 and 2020. And I think that's pretty important in terms of getting a handle on where people are likely to be from an income standpoint. You want to share some of those with us, Michael? Well, first of all, the MFP program was was, was so important in 2018, 2019 in ter- in terms of re- uh, supporting net net return to land, which we'll talk more about uh, for, for, for a case farm later on. Uh, but that was so critical. Uh, the, the MFP payment in 2018, uh, you're looking at a corn soybean rotation. So averaging the payments for corn and soybeans uh, was $52 per acre. Uh, the MFP payment in 2019 was $62 per acre. Uh, the, we, uh, there were, for this particular uh, county, again, White County, Indiana, there was not an R County PLC program program payment in, in 2018. Uh, there was about a $20 payment 
uh, in 2019. So you, you add those two together, uh, the Art County PLC and the MFP payment in 2019, that's $82 per acre. Again, that's the average for, for corn and soybeans. So very good payment uh, per acre uh, coming, out of the, coming out of those two programs in 2019. Looking at 2020, uh, the Art County and PLC pro- program payments look like they're going to be quite a bit higher. Uh, in fact, double from what they were in 2019, because we're expecting a pretty healthy payment uh, coming from PLC for corn, uh, about $60 per acre, uh, smaller payment for soybeans, and the average being about $40. Uh, the payment coming out of the CFAP program uh, you know, uh, would be about $20. And so you add those two up for 2020, uh, you're looking at about $60 to government payments uh, compared to that $82 in 2019. Uh, so this, uh, bottom line, the CFAP payment is very helpful, uh, but there may be, uh, may be a need for some additional payments later on this year. We'll just see uh, what happens. Well, let's take a look at some net return projections, and you have uh, maybe should stop by, uh, start off by uh, kind of defining some yeah, I want to define a couple different terms here. First of all, net farm income is, is the, uh, the, the net income you'd see on an income statement. And so it, it excludes opportunity costs on, on land and machinery. And so if you own machinery, land, grain bins, we do not charge a cost for those things. This is, this is uh, cash expenses and, and depreciation. It also excludes operating family labor. So that's very important to note uh, when I talk about net farm income projections for for a case farm in White County, Indiana. Uh, net return to land, on the other hand, uh, includes these opportunity costs. And so net return to land can be directly compared to cash rent. If net return to land is under cash rent, uh, that, that's, that's telling us that there might be downward pressure on cash rent and vice versa. Uh, and, so, and so those are uh, considerably different uh, uh, critters, if you will. Net farm income is more of an income statement. Net return to land is more of an economic uh, return. Let's take a look at the estimates you've come up with here, especially looking forward to 20, uh, 19 and 20. So I want to, I want to talk about a couple different comparisons here. Uh, first of all, uh, if, if we look at this case farm, the worst, the worst year uh, since 2007 was 2015. Uh, that was a very difficult year from a, uh, from a cropping standpoint because uh, we had a lot of rain uh, in, in, in uh, Northern Indiana uh, particularly in June, uh, which really reduced the yields that particular year. And so net farm income was negative in 2015. With the government payments, particularly the MFP payments, uh, net farm income was below the, the, uh, the long-run average, but was, 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 was positive uh, to the tune of about $50 to $75 in 2018, 2019. Uh, 2020, even though we're looking at about $60 uh, in government payments coming from the CFAP program, uh, and and Art County PLC, we're looking at a situation where we have a net for a negative net farm income. Uh, it's very similar to what we saw in 2015. And so, if you look at the difference between 2018, 2019, and 2020, we're looking at uh, at least a hundred dollar drop in net farm income uh, moving from 18, 19 into 2020. And so, that's certainly a signal that there may be some downward pressure. Uh, needed on cash rents. Yeah, you had a chart that we were looking at uh, on this one, Michael, and it was quite striking looking at the chart, the parallel between 2020 projection and and what 2015 looked like. And your case farm, of course, is in West Central Indiana, which is a part of the state that was hit 
by excessive moisture in 2015 and made for a very challenging year for a lot of people in West Central Indiana. And uh, yeah, looking at that, uh, even with the government program payments, uh, still uh, look all, all the way back to 07, the only only other year when net farm income was negative was that 2015. So that kind of puts it in perspective in terms of 2020 not looking very good, at least at this point in time. You also took a look at the estimated operating profit margin ratio on this farm. Yeah, and and, and this is similar to what we've already talked about. 2020, uh, same with 2015, we're looking at negative operating profit margin. What that essentially means is if we look at net farm income plus interest, uh, you know, cash interest that we pay uh, pay to banks and other lenders, um, that that amount is is not big enough to cover family living expenses. And, and remember, net farm income, in addition to covering family living, is also used to repay debt. It's also uh, used to to uh, to purchase machinery, purchase land, uh, at least a down payment on those items. Uh, and and so that's certainly not good news uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And typically, what happens when you see negative profit margin, that means you're looking at a further decline uh, in working capital because you have to get the money from someplace uh, in order to to, uh, to, to pay uh, the the family members um, that are working in the business, but also to repay debt. Uh, and, and, and so, and so already uh, depressed working capital is going to be, is going to be uh, used again uh, to help, to help pay bills. Yeah. And so I think one of the things I was thinking about was, as you were talking there, Michael, is the fact that we've been pulling down working capital now for five years in a row. And of course we entered this environment uh, going back to 20, late 2014, early 2015 with, on many farms in the Corn Belt and in Eastern India and Eastern Corn Belt, especially uh, many of those farms had a very strong working capital position, but we've eroded that working capital year after year. Um, and now entering 2020 uh, and, and looking ahead even to 2021, uh, it's going to be a challenge for some people. Right. And so I well, think from, from a management that's definitely standpoint, the case. And, and, uh, I, the average work, you know, the average working capital ratios are are down considerably from what they were five years ago. But but more importantly, uh, the that bottom quartile in terms of uh, in terms of uh, working capital ratios uh, is really going to struggle. Um, you know, they're they're going to have to they're going to have to look everywhere uh, for cash uh, in order to repay debt. Uh, and and another thing that's happening here is our is our capital expenditures have been also been drawn down. Uh, since 2014, because profit margins have been lower, uh, we're getting to we're getting to the point on 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 several farms where they need to replace some machinery, uh, and and so I think that's one of the reasons why uh, we've we've heard some evidence that used machinery uh, is really uh, going for uh, is is more demand for used machinery than new machinery in some cases, and I think that's reflective of where we're at in terms of profit uh, profitability and working capital. Yeah, good point. So let's talk about cash rent. Uh, that's obviously going to be a, an important topic as we move through the rest of 2020. Yeah, right now, uh, you typically, if there's a relatively small difference between cash rent and net return to land, there's not tremendous pressure uh, to, to, to uh, renegotiate cash rents and to lower cash rents. But we're looking at a, a difference uh, today that's at in excess of $100 per acre. Uh, the last time we saw a situation like that was 2015. We had a large drop in, in cash rents in 2016 because of that. 
Uh, and so certainly we're not necessarily looking at uh, as large a drop as we saw in 2015. I believe that was seven, eight, seven to eight percent decline. But certainly uh, something uh, zero to five percent uh, would be some, you know, if, if, if net, net, net uh, return to land does not increase because of uh, relatively high yields or, or improved uh, corn prices or something like that, we're looking at a situation where we're going to need to do some negotiate negotiation with respect to cash rents. Yeah, I think, uh, again, the parallel between 2015 and 2020 is, is pretty strong and uh, it certainly suggests that there's going to be some downward pressure on cash rent. Um, you and I were talking earlier about land values and particularly relative to cash rent. And I think we both kind of agree on this. We see some downward pressure on cash rent, but we're not convinced there's going to be that much downward pressure on land values. And, and you spent some time thinking about the factors that are influencing. Yeah, yeah land certainly values. the fact that that net returns are relatively low, uh, particularly in 2020, is going to have some uh, downward pressure on land values. And also, working capital working capital is used to, to make down payments on land. If there's not much working capital there, uh, farm does not have uh, does, is, is is not able to purchase land uh, in many cases, uh, but there is some positive influences uh, when you look at the land market uh, that that are different uh, than when you look at the cash rent market. And, and so let's talk briefly about those. Uh, one of the one of the factors is uh, there's a very land market's a very thin market. Very little man, uh, land gets turned over in a particular year, uh, and so and and but there's also a low supply of land for sale at this particular time. So very thin market, and there's not a lot of supply right now. So that's going to help hold up prices. Also, uh, land is a good hedge against inflation. Uh, Federal Reserve policies in response to COVID uh, could potentially lead to an increase in inflation. Uh, and, and, and so land is attractive from that standpoint. Also, uh, there's good reasons for institutional investors, long-term investors, to be interested in land. Uh, land tends to have a, a fairly good return over time. Uh, but but probably more importantly, it's not correlated with the stock market or uh, uh, you know uh, corporate bond uh, returns, and so because of that, it's attractive uh, to to institutional investors. And I and I, I I point out this is institutional investors because certainly farmland is something you're not going to turn over uh, like you would some stocks. If you buy land, you're going to hold it. Uh, that's the only way you're going to get these long-term returns that I'm, that I'm talking about is if you hold land for a long period of time. So uh, there is there is a lot of investors that are not interested because of the transaction costs associated with land. But there is a group, pension funds in particular, uh, that, that do find farmland to be attractive. But Jim, as we were uh, talking about earlier today, the most important factor is low interest rates. Uh, if low interest rates remain low, which it looks like they're going to, uh, for, for quite a while, at least two years, that's going to really help, uh, uh, you know, put a floor uh, under, land, under land values. And so you put all this together, and I think we're in a situation where we could see some downward pressure on cash rents, but not very much pressure uh, for land values to decline. I'm not suggesting that land values are necessarily going to increase in value, but I think there is some good reason to expect that land prices to be stable, despite the fact uh, that we're facing these relatively low net returns. Yeah, I tend to agree. I think land values are probably going to be relatively stable here over the next uh, uh, year or so. Um, unlike the cash rent, I think there's going to be some downward pressure on cash rent. One of the things we did in our last Ag Economy Barometer Survey was ask people that rent farmland um, if they plan to try and renegotiate 
their cash run arrangements with their landlords in light of what's taken place this year. And I think just over one out of four people that responded to that survey said that they intended to try and negotiate uh, lower cash rent rates for uh, the 2021 crop year. And, um, you know, it's the majority said they wouldn't. The majority said they probably wouldn't do that. But uh, I think one out of four is enough on average to maybe drive down the average cash run rate some. Um, that'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. And of course, for a lot of farming operations, those cash run rate discussions haven't really got underway yet, but they will be pretty soon. A lot of those discussions start to take place over the course of the summer and certainly in the early fall. So, uh, we're on the cusp of seeing some of those negotiations take place. So with that, uh, that kind of wraps up our uh, podcast for today, Michael. Thanks for joining us. Um, for more economic information, you can visit us at the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture's website, which is just purdue.edu slash commercial ag. And on behalf of the Center for Commercial Agriculture and my colleague, Michael Langemeyer, I'm Jim Minnert, and thanks for listening to the podcast. 